0: Welcome to Pax Britannica, Episode Ten The Flight of the Earls. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we covered three major plots against James's reign and life. The main and by plot orchestrated within the first few months after Elizabeth's death, and the gunpowder plot, which was famously foiled on the 5th of November, 1605. James was surprisingly merciful to those connected with these conspiracies, with more than a few conspirators simply being exiled or imprisoned. The traitor's death was handed down for the ringleaders, though, and the imprisonment of figures like Sir Walter Raleigh and Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, would last for more than a decade. The failure of these plots, even at the last minute as the gunpowder plot was, must surely have been something of a confidence boost for the new triple monarch. Despite the claims and efforts of the conspirators, his subjects did not rise up en masse to overthrow him. That did not mean, however, that they were all compliant and overwhelmingly supportive of the royal will. As we covered two episodes ago, James's governing style was a marked contrast to that of Elizabeth. Similarly, the preponderance of Scots at court further strained relations between the king and his English subjects. The problem of Parliament is one that will dog the rest of James's reign, and come to a violent head during his son's, pun not intended. As David Smith, fellow of Selwyn College, Cambridge, writes, quote, No aspect of James I's kingship reveals his paradoxical blend of strengths and weaknesses, of wisdom and misjudgment, more plainly than his relations with his English parliaments. On the one hand, His understanding of the nature of the institution and his capacity to diffuse tension and controversy deserve much more credit than they have often received. But, on some occasions, he had himself sparked off those controversies. Again, as we saw in episode 8, James was very keen on the idea of further political union between his kingdoms. The 1604 parliamentary session saw the tacit acceptance of a commission to look at integration, but that was the limit of the parliamentarian's support. They refused to agree to James's adoption of the title of King of Great Britain, despite his efforts, and James interfered with parliamentary procedure, stepping in when a dispute arose over an MP's election and ordering that a new ballot be taken. Sensible, perhaps, but this was not the way Parliament operated. In a speech, James had described Parliament's rights as a gift granted by his ancestors. The meaning, inferred by the Commons, was that said rights were therefore liable to be revoked. Clearly, the problem was simply that the King, as a Scot and a foreigner, was just not aware of how things were done in England – A petition was drafted in the House of Commons, the Form of Apology and Satisfaction, which supposedly laid out exactly what the relationship was meant to be between the monarch and their parliament. The Commons did not eventually approve the document, and it was never officially presented to the king, but a debate between a few hundred members of parliament is not a subtle thing, and James heard about the draft apology he was not best pleased. On the 7th of July, James prorogued the parliamentary session, which meant the Assembly was suspended without being dissolved. When they re-met, there would be no need for new elections. James gave a speech that is best summed up as, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I have more to say of you, my masters of the lower house, both in regard of former occasions and now of your Speaker's speech, It hath been the form of most kings to give thanks to their people, however their deserts were, of some to use sharp admonishment and reproof. Now, if you expect either great praises or reproofs out of custom, I will deceive you in both. I will not thank you where I think no thanks due. You would think me base if I should. It were not Christian. It were not kingly. End quote. They had done nothing of value, granted him no new taxes, and endlessly bickering over concepts that were not under their purview. He did not appreciate his subjects telling him how he was meant to rule, and he certainly didn't appreciate their attempts to turn him into an English king. He wasn't an English king, he was a Scot, and he would rule like a Scot. That was God's will. After proroguing the parliament, James went ahead and declared himself the king of Great Britain by royal proclamation in October. James's experience as king of Scots and the differences between that position and the crown of England was not isolated solely to his privy council and household, but also to parliament. In the Scottish parliament, the king was usually present with an active role in discussions. This wasn't possible in the English system. Parliament was bicameral, with a House of Lords and a House of Commons, both sitting at the same time, making James's presence at every event an impossibility, even if tradition allowed. Messages, speeches, and the presence of his deputies in Parliament simply could not replace the benefits of physically being present during parliamentary debates. Political union had been the focus of the first session, but it was largely put aside in the second session, held after the discovery of the gunpowder plot. The issue of wardships and purveyance dogged the king throughout the length of his first parliament, with both forming part of the apology and satisfaction. The issue of wardship was a debate over the right of the crown to assume the guardianship of minors who inherited property. Such guardianship was a valuable source of income, and had been for centuries, as the monarch was then able to dispose of the inheritances as he wished. Purveyance was the king's prerogative, to seize supplies and transportation, and pay a significantly lower price than the market said they were worth. Neither the right was popular, open to abuse as they were, and these two issues were debated throughout the first three sessions of James's Parliament. The proposal to exchange these crown rights for a lump sum and regular stipend came to a head in the final session of James's first parliament in 1610, which we will return to in a future episode. In the meantime, James and his court were able to wrangle some additional subsidies from parliament. The discovery of the gunpowder plot led to a rush of support for the king, and the grant of some additional income. But, Perhaps surprisingly, the fact that they had only avoided being blown to kingdom come through the actions of royal agents did not lead to long-lasting sympathy for the crown. One of the concerns of the commons was the king's vast expenses. His generosity during his arrival into England, which had caused such consternation at the time, had continued for the next few years. Despite claiming in 1607 to have reined his spending habits in, Parliament was reluctant to indulge him. Crown debts rose from £100,000 in 1603 to £600,000 in 1608, but this was not solely James's fault. His personal revenues had steadily declined, and he struggled to live of his own. As Smith puts it, quote, James was a genuinely needy king who was extravagant, And unfortunately, his extravagance made the Commons more reluctant to acknowledge his genuine needs. With the beginning of the third session of Parliament, lasting between November 1606 and July 1607, James's pet project once more comes to centre stage. The Royal Commission, established to consider detailed proposals of union, gave their report and proposed cooperation in three areas trade, laws, and naturalisation of subjects, which James reiterated in a speech in March 1607. He pointed out that an earlier union, that of Wales, was an example of the benefits of union, quote, do you not gain by the union of Wales? And is Scotland not greater than Wales? End quote. In this, James seems to have missed the point. Wales was annexed into England. English custom, language, and law replaced their native Welsh counterparts. James was not suggesting the same treatment of Scotland, which may have gone over much better. Instead, Scotland would become an equal partner, or at least join with England on much more generous terms. The aim of naturalisation had previously been discussed by Parliament, who split Scottish subjects into two groups. The post were those Scots born after James was declared King of England and Ireland in March 1603. The anti-Natti were those born before this date. James hoped to do away with this division, like so many others, and like so many others, he would be disappointed. He declared to Parliament, quote, All you agree that they are no aliens, and yet you will not allow them to be natural, end quote the opposition of the House of Commons, outlined by Smith, was threefold. Firstly, it was feared that reducing trade barriers would damage the English economy, and as the Commons was made up of gentry and merchants, this naturally clashed with their interests. The second was on the issue of naturalisation. Removing the distinction between Scot and Englishman would, it was feared, allow a horde of ravenous, greedy Highlanders to rush into England, draining the English of their prosperity and receiving disproportionate favour from the Scottish King. The third was rooted in the supremacy of the English Parliament. Unity of laws seemed to suggest the merger of Scottish and English laws, which was simply not acceptable. The one compromise the English Parliament was willing to accept was the removal of openly hostile laws against Scots. By the end of the third session, James had largely accepted that union, through parliamentary statute, which would have been the most effective method of bringing about reform, was dead in the water. Such reforms that were implemented were often conducted outside of parliamentary process. James had slight changes to the Scottish kirk made, and introduced justices of the peace to Scotland. He had ordered a combined flag to be flown from all royal and merchant ships in 1606, a merger of the crosses of St Andrew and St George. This was the first rendition of the Union flag, better known as the Union Jack, without the second red saltire of St Patrick which was only gained after the Kingdom of Ireland was merged with the Kingdom of Great Britain 200 years later. The Union flag would remain limited to the sea, and the St George's and St Andrew's Crosses would remain the primary signs of both kingdoms of Britain until 1707. The Middle Shires had been proclaimed in 1603, with known reavers arrested and many hanged as bandits. Up to 2,000 were arrested and dispatched to fight the Spanish in the Netherlands. Later on, with Parliament's approval during the third session, statutes were declared that meant suspected raiders could be pursued across the border, and could no longer escape justice simply by entering another jurisdiction. Their fates, once caught, were usually execution or transportation, either to elsewhere in Britain, to wars on the continent, or two plantations in Ireland, or the new colony of Virginia. The topic of political union so far has only really involved England and Scotland, but this tale neglects the third constituency in James's great dream, the Emerald Isle. In Ireland, James saw an opportunity for a shared British endeavour, where English and Scots could cooperate in the civilisation of these rebellious savages. However, much like his political efforts in Britain, James would find himself disappointed with the results. At the coronation of James in July 1603, Ireland had only very recently been pacified after the Nine Years' War, an uprising against English rule that lasted from April 1593 to March 1603, led by the Earl of Tyrone, Hugh O'Neill. This led to its other name, Tyrone's Rebellion, and as the Earls received significant Spanish backing, the war in Ireland is often considered a front in the undeclared Anglo Spanish War. The Gaelic lords had been largely successful in their fight until the turn of the century, with English commanders and their Anglo Irish and Gaelic allies being unable to give the rebels a serious defeat. To the extent that Tyrone sent Elizabeth humiliating terms of peace in 1599, which allowed for English overlordship of Ireland, but with wide-ranging concessions in politics and religion. Yet the tide soon turned, and even with the long-promised Spanish army, the rebels were defeated at the Battle of Kinsale and forced back to their strongholds. The English began a brutal scorched-earth policy in Ulster, burning crops and attacking peasants to induce a famine and end resistance. The English forces built fortifications as they went, further amplifying the pressure, and finally Tyrone surrendered at Meliphant Abbey in March of 1603. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. As covered in episode 8, winning the war in Ireland had been incredibly expensive, and the Dublin government still had a large army to pay. The government in London began to steadily reduce the amount granted to their counterparts in Ireland, with the expectation that Ireland would simply pay for its own costs. The Irish government, headquartered in Dublin Castle, opposed this every step of the way. David Edwards, of University College Cork, argues that Dublin was actually able to hold its own against London's attempt to cut its budget. They pointed out, that the pacification of the rebels had required the destruction of vast tracts of arable land and the deaths of tens of thousands of Irish taxpayers. Despite James's agents having paid off and disbanded thousands of soldiers from the army in Ireland, the occupation of strategic strongholds and the enforcement of English law and order required significant numbers of men under arms. The investment of blood and treasure... In the Nine Years’ War would be wasted if Dublin could not adequately project its newly re-established authority. As Dr. Edwards points out, it seems that these arguments were actually heeded. Between 1604 and 1615, funding from London remained the main source of Dublin’s revenue, with English contributions dropping in subsequent years as the Irish economy began to recover and pick up the slack. While Dublin did begin to reduce the garrisons in most of Ireland, with some notable exceptions that we'll cover later on, surviving documents show that the number of men under arms was roughly comparable to the forces Elizabeth had retained in the territory prior to the war, an average of two to 3,000 men. While a minuscule amount in comparison to continental conflicts, this was a significant portion of the Anglo-Scottish military. Intended to impose English law and order across a country that had, in the eyes of London, proven itself repeatedly troublesome. What law and order was, and how it was implemented, was up for debate. Proclamations from Dublin dealt with the quote unquote civilising of Ireland on a macro level, but by and large the treatment of the Irish was left to the commanders and officers of the army. For almost two years after the Treaty of Mellifont was signed, martial law remained in force. This granted officers and their subordinates wide-ranging authority over the life and death of almost every Irishman. In the face of opposition or resistance, or the expectation of opposition or resistance, the commanding officer of a garrison had the power to summarily execute anyone below a certain rank. It's important to remember that these armies were veterans of the war. They had fought the rebels for almost ten years, suffering disease and hunger and death, losing friends and comrades to the Irish. That is to say, due process and reasonable cause were not a priority for the occupation forces, and many officers took the opportunity to punish their former enemies, or even merely suspected rebel sympathisers, with the ultimate sanction. After 1605, the wartime martial law commissions were disbanded by London, only for the government in Dublin to reinstate and refine the commissions to better suit peacetime. Dublin was not taking it easy while the army dealt with suspected rebels. In 1604, former Governor of Carrickfergus and General in the Nine Years' War, Sir Arthur Chichester, was appointed Lord Deputy of Ireland, the King's Representative and Chief Executive of the Kingdom, succeeding Lord Mountjoy, who had led the English forces to victory in Tyrone's Rebellion, and had been subsequently awarded with a place on the Privy Council and the Earldom of Devonshire. Chichester oversaw a series of measures intended to both militarily weaken Gaelic and Anglo-Irish nobility, as well as bring the country as a whole more into line with British norms. As early as 1605, peace concessions that had been made by the British to the local nobility began to be withdrawn, and a series of radical changes began to be enforced by government officials backed up by the army. One of these was the insistence of Dublin that the magnates of Ireland vouch for the behaviour of each of their retainers on the pain of a substantial fine. This had the expected outcome of many lords weighing the cost and benefit of their private armies and concluding it wasn't worth the potential financial ruin to keep on all of their men. These shed soldiers then faced some potentially terrible fates death at the hands of the English occupation whether their former lord had been in rebellion or not, as a native swordsman was always suspected by military commanders, or transportation out of the country. Chichester reported that between 1609 and 1614, at least 6,000 quote, disaffected Irishmen, end quote, had been deported to Scandinavia. But he implies that this was only the most recent update, and there had been many more, He also comments that many of those being taken from their homes were former allies of the crown. As we will touch on later, former allegiance to England was no guarantee of clemency. One of the most revolutionary reforms implemented by the Dublin government was over inheritance. In England and Scotland, the usual system of noble inheritance was primogeniture, which gave the eldest son, or closest male relative, the estate in its entirety. The traditional system in Irish territory was that of tanistry. Tanistry was an elective system. The lord would nominate a relative, not necessarily his eldest son or even his own child, to be his tanist and receive his patrimony. This allowed lords to avoid bequeathing their lands to undesirable heirs, be they young children who would fall victim to intrigue or married daughters that would cause their territory to be inherited by their husbands. As we saw with the O'Neill, it could also be exploited, with powerful nobles forcing their relatives to name them their heir. These lands and networks of vassalage would remain held by a dynasty as a whole, which managed the territories through a combination of negotiation, bribery, threats of violence, and personal loyalty. In 1606, the practice of tanistry was declared void by Dublin. Primogeniture, in the English fashion, was now the inheritance system. This had been tried previously, during the Henrician administration, but the circumstances in Ireland and the military supremacy of the British greatly improved its results. This policy struck at these networks directly heavily restricting the ability of Irish lords to maintain strong bases of power through the generations. Aside from the obvious benefit of weakening the Irish magnates, bringing Irish inheritance practices into line with their English hegemons yielded various secondary benefits, not least that now English law and English courts could oversee Irish property, and the further transformation of Irish society into something more palatable to the Britons. Yet government officials were not content to simply wait for natural inheritance to break up these large estates. The Commission for the Remedy of Defective Titles was established in order to travel across the countryside, escorted by the military to ensure compliance, persuading native landowners to redistribute their territories into clearly defined freeholds and tenancies, with the landowner then receiving a clear title to the property they now held under English common law. On paper, they now had a range of rights available to any subject of the king, and could resort to petitioning the crown. In reality, this simply weakened the sovereignty of Irish landowners and lords, making them far more vulnerable in the face of the government in Dublin. Further striking at the native aristocracy, in March of 1605, the new Lord Deputy Chichester proclaimed that the people of Ireland were, quote, free, natural, and immediate subjects of his majesty, end quote. He went on to explain exactly what this new, immediate status would mean. All Gaelic and Anglo-Irish lords were to, quote, utterly forbear to use or usurp upon any of their tenants or dependents those odious and unlawful customs, end quote, that traditionally they had enjoyed. Beneath the flowery language, this meant the end of all the various dues and rights that had been demanded from the tenants and vassals of the aristocracy for centuries. Lords had been able to fully support themselves and their retinues of bodyguards, servants, and private armies, on the income gained from a vast array of feudal dues. Your children are getting married. You owe your lord a fee for the privilege. Your lord is touring his holdings and finishes the day near your village. Guess who has to provide him and his party with bed and board for the night? These myriad forms of private taxation were the lifeblood of an Irish magnate's purse. And their abolition brought about immediate economic decline. They were compensated by the government, of course, but this was only a token amount, and in no way helped pay for the traditional lifestyle of an Irish lord. This was intentional. They also kept the rights to rent and the ordinary income from their personal estates, but in many cases this land was already set up for either customary service by their tenants or payment in kind, both of which left the respective lord wealthy on paper but cash-strapped in practice. A rapid increase in Gaelic land sales followed, often to English and Scots, as magnates found their debts coming due, but with no way to earn the money, further splintering and weakening the Irish landowning class. This treatment was not isolated solely to those who had been rebellious or otherwise unwilling subjects of the crown, In March of 1606, the Earl of Upper Ossery, a steadfast ally of the English crown during the war, had his right to take private exactions from his vassals, stripped of him by Chichester. The judgment was backed up by a military force of 50 cavalry and a 100 infantry, with the power of martial law to ensure that these reforms were accepted by the Earl. If old allies received no preferential treatment then those that had openly opposed the English had little hope. Indeed, the county of Ulster was a significant holdout against English influence even after the Treaty of Mellifont. Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Ulster, Rory O'Donnell, the Earl of Tyrconnell, and Cucanoct Maguire, the Lord of Firminar, which I am probably mispronouncing, were united in their resistance to the new order. Chichester, who had fought these men in the Nine Years' War, made use of the numerous forts that had been constructed during that war, and kept them fully garrisoned. Indeed, even as the government in London slashed the subsidies sent to Ireland, the government in London kept the standing force in Ulster at its expensive wartime level, such was the hostility and wariness Chichester had for these rebellious nobles. The Lord Deputy had no intention of allowing the Earls to avoid the fate of their countrymen in the south, and the garrison commanders were encouraged to entice them into submission. The persuasive tactics used by the English soldiers ranged from seizing the land of the nobles, forbidding fishing and hunting in local areas, the requisition of livestock and crops, the targeted rape of local women, and at least one massacre – of Tyrone's subjects, all conducted against a backdrop of martial law, which of course included summary execution by hanging or shooting for arbitrary reasons. While the earls were being suitably pressured, the commission for defective titles was making itself known to their various vassals, and many took the opportunity to distance themselves from their overlords and seek better terms with the English. In response, the earls, led by Tyrone, sought and received financial support from Spain, and tried and failed to win political support from esteemed courtiers in London. Never one to rely solely on the pen, Tyrone picked up the sword, and learnt of a plot by other disaffected nobles to attack the seat of English government in Ireland, Dublin Castle. This conspiracy abruptly fell apart because someone talked, someone always talks. Tyrone panicked. He fled Dublin and returned to his lands in Ulster, but he quickly found that he was still in danger. His enemies, both English and Irish, were ascendant even here, and so he boarded a ship, financed with Spanish money, and sailed from Ireland alongside Tyrconnell, Lord Maguire, and their retainers. The earls had fled. Next week, we will return to Ireland to see exactly what the Stuart government will do in the aftermath of the sudden flight of the most powerful Irish lords, and look more into the how and why of this pivotal event itself. At the same time, a company established the previous year in 1606 had succeeded in a task at which generations of Englishmen had failed. They had established a surviving colony in the New World. So next week, we will be looking at the beginning of two rival plantation projects, the Plantation of Ulster and the Colony of Virginia. Thank you to my House of Lords, which has exploded with new members over the last two weeks. I get so giddy when I see that someone new has decided to give me even a small amount of money, in which case I'm probably not too different from James thinking about it. For patrons of $2 or more... A poll has been started to help me decide on the topic of future episodes. There are five topics to choose from. Religion, because I've only covered it briefly and it's very important. European warfare, particularly in the British Isles. How Parliament actually worked at this time. Who got to vote, who got to stand, that sort of thing. Shakespeare, which I promise won't simply be my performance of Hamlet. And what James thought about witchcraft. I'll try and cover them all at some point, but whichever of these is the most popular will come first, hopefully sometime in April. As standalone episodes, they require a bit more research and time, and so I want to make sure that I pick the one most people will enjoy. If you want to vote, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica and pledge $2 or more. My review of the week, which seems to be a tradition I've gained, is from Ross Morrison on the Facebook page. He reviewed the show just as it launched and said, Great start to the series. Charming and informative as ever. Give it a listen. Charming. Thanks, Ross. I should also point out that if the sound quality is a little bit different this week, it's because I've moved house and I'm not fully set up. I'm currently balancing a microphone on a chest of drawers, but there was no chance I was going to miss out a weekly episode. Hopefully by next week, I'll be fully settled, so it won't be a problem again. Thank you to my patrons, Elaine, Countess Dickens, Jean, Countess Buckley, Christopher, Earl Grogan, Brendan, the first Earl Bonner, Lady Michelle, Duchess of Devon, and the Royal Headsman, executed today. Thank you to my House of Lords, and to you for listening. No purchase necessary. VDW Group, were Prohibited by Law, 18 Plus, Terms and Conditions apply. Hello. My name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king. You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.